What are your tips for someone who's interested in learning more or just getting started that wants this radical rest? Oh, yeah. You start right this second. Right now. How? Just just right now. Let's do it together. Just take a moment, whether you're walking or sitting or whatever it is that you're doing, just stop whatever it is that you're doing. And if it's comfortable, you can close your eyes. If not, you can keep your eyes open, keep your gaze soft, roll your shoulders back. Take a deep breath in. Nice long exhale. Good. We're going to do that two more times. Just two clearing breaths. Inhale through your nose. I'm not in a yoga studio, at least not yet anyway. I'm in my room speaking virtually to yoga, meditation, and mindfulness teacher, Rosie Acosta. She's also a podcast host and author of You Are Radically Loved, A Healing Journey to Self-Love. And we're both meditating, taking a deep inhale and exhale as we take a moment for ourselves. Take a deep breath in. Nice long exhale. Lower your chin and then you can blink your eyes open when you're ready. That was so nice. That was almost three minutes of your life. And tell me if there's a difference in how you feel. Oh, there's a difference in the room. It's like, it's not just you, it's everything around you. It's so, so, so nice. Yeah. Did you love that? Even in the studio, they loved it. (laughs) 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 This is not my first time meditating. I actually meditate every morning or At least I tried to. And I have been doing this for 14 years now. What started with a two-minute daily sit is now a 30 to 40-minute one. When time permits, or I make the time. My practice has gotten deeper, but the questions of life still remain. Today, Rosie is going to tell us all about how she got into the practice of meditation and how it changed her life. And later, we're going to hear from the incredible yoga teacher, Susanna Barkataki, on how yoga and meditation go hand in hand, and more importantly, how she's creating an inclusive and diverse yoga community. My name's Christopher Rivas, and this is Brown Enough Stories Between Black and White. Here we go. There's a chapter in my book, Brown Enough, called Always Lie When Someone Asks If You Meditate. You see, I was first introduced to meditation after lying to someone I wanted to impress. This woman came up to me in college and she asked me, Chris, do you meditate? And I said, yes. I had never meditated a day in my life, but she was cool and I wanted her to think I was cool. And so I lied. I know, pretty mature, right? I was in my early 20s. Give me a break. Anyway, we started dating and I was able to maintain this lie for close to a year. And then on my 21st birthday, she bought me a plane ticket to Barry, Massachusetts to attend a seven-day silent retreat. Yes, seven days of complete silence. Now, instead of telling her the truth, I took the plane ticket and went to this silent retreat with her. After never meditating, this is an intense way to jump in. And yet, it was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life, and it was also the most freeing thing I've ever done in my life. That's where the magic began. 
It was life-changing for me. Meditation changed my life. I share this with you because being a brown kid from Queens, meditation didn't really exist in my sphere or in my world. It was unheard of. And now that I live in Los Angeles, you hear about meditation all the time. Mainly it's like meditate to become a better CEO or meditate to like, you know, be more successful or accomplish more things. I feel like we've come pretty far from the source of what meditation is all about. And then in these yoga classes or sitting sessions, I rarely see brown folks who look like me. And I know I'm not the only one. Rosie is a Latina from East L.A., and growing up, her view of yoga was actually quite different. Well, I mean, you know, when you grow up in L.A., you you kind of hear... You hear about it, you might see it occasionally. It's kind of a weird thing. I think for us to, like... Growing up in a Hispanic household, it was very cultish to us. Like it seemed like a, something very weird and strange. And so I think that was really my first initial exposure. But when I was a teenager, uh, I was suffering from debilitating panic attacks and I had anxiety. I was in the middle of, uh, just a really difficult time as teenage delinquents have. And it was suggested to me by a friend of my mom's who she worked with uh, at the children's hospital in Hollywood that I try meditation as a way to quell my anxiety and my stress. And I was, yeah, completely in a state of uh, like, freeze, you know, I I would get these panic moments where I could just, it it was very akin to agoraphobia. But at the time, nobody really understood why I was having these bouts of panic. Why were you having these bouts of panic? Well, considering that most of my childhood was spent in a state of chaos in a gang riddled environment with drive-by shootings and seeing somebody get shot and stabbed and just being in this really chaotic environment in East LA. Like, so everybody had PTSD. So it wasn't uh, like a, a source of uh, inquiry. It just was the norm. So I think at that time, we just didn't know what it was. We didn't know what the panic was. And I, I had just suffered a immense loss. My two childhood best friends had been uh, killed during the El Nino storm. They drowned in the LA River. And so, yeah, I was kind of going through it, you know. And uh, yeah, my mom came home with these pamphlets about meditation and I was really into new agey things at the time and it seemed like something outside of the Catholic norm that I was indoctrinated in. And so I just quickly took to it. I read the little pamphlet and decided to venture off to uh, the Self-Realization Fellowship. It happened that the pamphlets that I was reading were from this old yogi from the 1930s called Paramahansa Yogananda. And if people are familiar with yoga at all, he was the author of uh, Autobiography of a Yogi. Great which book. For a, lot of, for a lot of people, yeah, they recognize that text. And so that was, yeah, that was my introduction to it. 
Rosie was 15 when she was first introduced to the practice of meditation. And she says her journey of learning was rough. I mean, paying attention to the moment often created a level of anxiety for her. But she eventually worked her way through it. I found that my meditation, when I first started, it was more reading about meditation than it was actually doing meditation. And so little by little, I started to just take moments in the morning to be still, you know, listen to the sounds of the city when I was walking to school or, you know, just going to a local park. Prospect Park by downtown LA was one of my favorite hangs. Um, so that that's what it looked like for me. And, and after a few years, then it became a sit-down practice where I was able to actually incorporate it as something that I did daily. Now she's a yoga, meditation, and wellness teacher. She's worked with a wide range of students all over the world, from those in her community to Olympic athletes, NFL champions, and NBA stars. Uh, you are a Latina woman. One of the main reasons I wanted you on here is because I am very in love with with the practice of meditation. There are not a lot of people who look like us in that world. You know, you founded in a pamphlet by Yogananda, uh, a brown man. What did you did you see a lot of people who looked like you in this world that you were entering more seriously? Oh, no. I mean, I didn't even see brown people like Yogananda practicing when I first started. When I first started practicing yoga specifically, I'd have to travel to the West Side to go to a yoga studio. And everybody on the West Side does not look like me. So it was a little bit of a of a trying exercise. In fact, I, I write about this initial experience in my book um, where I talk about how here I am finally taking the steps to create a practice that's going to serve my highest good. And yet, just like there wasn't any role models for me growing up of what success looked like, I also didn't have any role models of what this was going to look like in this world right? Specifically in the world of wellness. At the time, it was very white, you know, and and I did struggle at times with certain things. You know, we grow up in the society, especially in, let's talk about meditation specifically or um, uh, mindfulness specifically, which is where I, I like to, I like to live in that space. Um, this idea of letting go of letting go of your identity of who you are, transcending that identity and achieving the state of non-attachment and letting go. And although that it's a great goal to have as a Hispanic woman, like as brown people, our identity is locked into the fact that we come from these beautifully suffered backgrounds. And it's important for us to honor that. So even just little things like that, where that acknowledgement wasn't there, not to say that they that the people leading classes weren't understanding, there just is a different level of um, unraveling that happens when you are 
involved in a spiritual practice and you do have a minority background, right? Like there it's so multi-layered and I feel like those were those tiny, you know, it was like death by a thousand paper cuts. You know, you don't really notice those small things in your journey to you know, getting well or on your journey to healing. But for me, and maybe for people like you or or people like us, like we notice those things. Like we see when we're not being represented or when there are, there's certain language that we didn't create that we abide by because that's the way things are. So I think that for me, going into this field, I wanted to create language around honoring our ancestors and around cultivating the practice of mindfulness and cultivating uh, that reverence to where we came from, you know, not as a way of attachment, but as a way to create a bigger vision for our life. I continue to go to silent retreats, yoga sessions, sitting sessions, but very little do I see people that look like me. I've grown up seeing magazines and billboards trying to sell me happiness. You know, white affluent looking people posed with their hands in prayer position. I know there are brown and black wellness spaces, but not enough around me in my pocket of Los Angeles. Why don't we prioritize self-care? I think culturally we're taught that the race has already started without us. Hmm. And we have somehow innately fallen behind. Right? So we spend our entire lives trying to catch up. So why would we take any time to stop? So I think that that's the main reason why, specifically black and brown people. And I I think that we need to reframe that, you know. I can't say we have to, You, there are absolutely injustices, there's absolutely people ahead of us, 1000%. I can't change it, you can't change it, but you can change it for yourself. You can change the the race of your own life, right? That that finish line that you're trying to get there, there is no competition. You know, you're you are the only person on your lane. And I think if you start to think about it in terms of you're only competing against yourself, you get to decide when to rest, you get to decide when to go. It it provides a little bit more space to take a breath and take a beat. And I think that most of us need to, yeah, re rework that framework. Thank you, Rosie, for sharing your journey with us. And I hope and know you will continue to help others begin their practice with meditation. You can find Rosie's work and hear more of her story by visiting her website, radicallylove.com. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to explore how yoga goes hand in hand with meditation with yoga teacher Susana Barkataki. Stick around. 
and we are back talking all things meditation and yoga. Susanna Barkataki is an Indian yoga practitioner who is passionate about honoring the roots of yoga and connecting them to the biggest issues we are currently facing today, like racism, environmental issues, or anything that revolves around equity. How did you get introduced to yoga? Do you know your first class, or were you raised with it? Or Yeah, it was... I feel like I had maybe three kind of entry points. And one was being raised with it, so with my family. When I was young, I had a lot of anxiety. I had a lot of um, insecurity. I was actually born in England, and we moved to the U.S. because of violence against um, Indian families. And so there was just a lot of tension in my life. And I remember having trouble going to sleep and my dad guiding me in some visualizations. And he said, imagine this blue light, you know, in front of— your forehead and then feel it filling your whole body. And then he'd lead me in a guided progressive relaxation, relaxing, tensing and relaxing each of my muscles. And these were things he'd learned from his pundit, his teacher in India. And they really helped. They really, really helped. But it was not until later when I took a yoga class at a YMCA, so at a gym, mm-hmm. right? Like in college, again, dealing with anxiety and stress and, you know, the pressure of tests and everything like that that I was like, oh, this practice is really helpful. Uh, It's really, really a place where I feel like my mind, my body can come together and I feel at home. My producer said that yoga helped him with his anxiety. You said it helped you with your anxiety. Why does it help people with anxiety? One tool that I, I find really helpful in thinking about why it helps with anxiety is I'm making like a little fist with my hand and I've got my thumb underneath my fingertips. So I don't know if folks at home you want to do that. Can I record like, this? Yeah. Here we go. Yeah. Ready? So <laughs> Show me. this is like an oversimplified model of the brain. And this comes from Daniel Goleman. I didn't make this up. Um, this is the idea that right here is our brainstem. So where we get triggered pre-verbal, you know, we're about to like throw a tantrum or we don't even have words. Here is our emotions and we're frustrated, we're angry, we're joyful. Right here, our fingers are problem solving, insight, understanding. And often when we're in our emotions or we're feeling anxiety, we're here. And so we're not really thinking that clearly. And we, what Goldman calls it is we flipped our lid. So what yoga does is link up all the different parts of our brain. So we're able to problem solve, we've integrated our emotions, and we're working with the lizard brain down into your wrist would be like the brainstem. So all of our our systems are working together, not just not um, aggravated or stressed or in anxiety, but unified, a unified whole state. This is yoga, right? The unified state. So that's why it helps with anxiety because it, sometimes bypasses like talk therapy or the things that don't actually get to the root of where anxiety lives, which is in the body. I, uh, I, f- I feel that because I, I say this all the time, like therapy only works if you're willing to show up. Yeah. Like unless you got a therapist who's a straight up samurai, yeah. like you got to be willing to do, to, to go to that place. You got to be willing to go to the lizard brain, you know, to go to the source. Right. And this is the reason I love being an artist is that I think art and certain physical practices have an ability to meet, meet you past your armor. Mm. Like they find the, the, the cracks in the armor you didn't know existed that you weren't prepared to cover up and then healing happens or unity or liberation or all of those things. Uh, In your story, you say, I see a world where yoga unites us all and excludes no one. 
but that wasn't always my understanding. Can you tell me more about this? What do you mean? Mm. Yeah. You know, when, even though I'd grown up with yoga, when I first went to try to practice yoga in studios in LA, I didn't feel welcome. I didn't feel like, you know, again, I'm kind of like small, I'm curvy, I'm actually not that flexible, even though I've, I've taught yoga now for a couple of decades. Um, I just didn't feel like me or folks like me were welcome. And I actually thought that was my fault. I thought I needed to practice harder. I need to work on everything, right? What I look like, maybe the clothes I wore, um, my flexibility to be worthy of being in that space. And I now understand like that that is just a misinterpretation of what yoga is. And I actually think truly most studios want to be inclusive. They just don't know how. Like I think that they want yoga to be there for everyone. I don't, you know, maybe there's a few places that are like, oh, we're just the coolest and the thinnest and the most flexible. But I, I do think people don't realize that a culture of competition or exclusion gets perpetuated. And that isn't what yoga is. Yoga is a practice for liberation for everyone. So a paraplegic person could do yoga through the breath through meditation, through visualization, through mantra, um, maybe, you know, mudra in the mind, right? Because mudra is like hand gestures or um, like a lot of folks might be familiar with gyan mudra where you touch your thumb and your pointer finger, the meditation mudra. But the highest mudra actually doesn't happen physically. It happens when the physical form, the visualization of that form and your mind are one. And so you don't need to move to practice yoga at all. Uh, how do yoga, I'm a big meditator. Mm. I do, I don't, uh, I practiced a lot of yoga in college. It was part, mm. went to a weird art school. It was part of our curriculum. So what um, art school? CalArts. So we did yoga, you know, required three times a week. I probably practiced six times a week. I was, you know, because I was, I like doing things t to the most. But, okay, wait, why did, why were they requiring you as art students to do yoga? That's fascinating to me. Uh, we were studying acting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so much of acting is, uh, is knowing thyself and, you know, mm -hmm. yoga was a great way to, to physically know your body and know your limits. And, mm -hmm. uh, this same teacher would also make us do sort of ecstatic dance and mm -hmm. all of these kinds of things. So it was just part of the, uh, pushing our bodies to certain limits or knowing our bodies better. Mm -hmm. We did Tai Chi as our course curriculum. It's, it's very cool. Yeah, I call amazing. it weird, but it's actually very cool. Uh, <laughs> it, should, it should be in many high schools as a requirement. Uh, I do less yoga now. I've mm -hmm. chosen other physical meditations for me. I'm a big mm -hmm. climber, mm -hmm. uh, but I am a big meditator. What is the relationship between yoga and meditation? Yeah. So there's eight limbs that we know from Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, which were written in around 200 to 300 BCE. And in those limbs of yoga, they're kind of like pillars or foundations. The first two are ethics, like a way to be in the world, how to be with each other, how to be with ourselves. The third is asana, so the physical practice. The fourth is pranayama meditation or uh, breath work. The fifth is dharana focus. And then there's dhyana, which is meditation. And then the last is samadhi or liberation, joy, bliss. And so one of the limbs of yoga is meditation. So it's actually part of the practice. And in the early days, like if you were to go, you know, if we could travel back 
2,500 years ago. Take me there. Yeah, really, right? Like sitting under the trees by streams on the outskirts of villages, also towns. Folks don't necessarily know, but the civilization that existed there in the, you know, Harappa and Mahenjo-daro, we have now some of the ruins of these civilizations. They were organized. They were villages built on grids with waterways, with irrigation, with drainage. They had buildings and homes made out of brick. They even had what looked like healing centers where there was like a, a central room and then small treatment rooms outside. And so this is thousands of years ago. It was in that context that yoga practitioners said, still, even with all the developments we have, we, we haven't solved for suffering. We're not happy. And so let's go and leave society as we know it, not to completely abandon it, but to find some other way to feel better, to feel relief, to feel joy, to be free of our suffering. And so they were often wandering in the forest on the outskirts of these cities and villages. Um, the Buddha was a prototypical yoga practitioner that we know a lot about because it was in that context of the shramana, the renunciate traditions, that yoga co-evolved alongside Buddhism and also Jainism as well. Sorry, Jainism? Jain, yeah, J-A-I-N. Which is? Uh, the practice of uh, Mahavira, who is kind of like the Buddha, like the main figure in Jainism. It's another religious and spiritual practice that developed in South Asia around that same time. And it's similar in many ways to Hinduism and, and Buddhism, but in a way it takes like, like if you're familiar with kind of the ethic of ahimsa or do no harm, take, Jainism often takes that even further. So you'll see Jains um, more in, in India, sweeping the floor in front of them with a brush to clear the bugs away so they don't cause harm. They'll only eat vegetables that fall from the tree, and they won't eat vegetables that it kills the, the plant for them to eat them. It's pretty profound. I sweeped my stairs this morning. Yeah. I have a, <laughs> it's a meditation, right? I have a deep practice of sweeping my stairs. I do it like once a week. And uh, before I moved into this home, I, I swept the stairs. Like uh, before I even decided that it's the place I wanted or that I would get the place um, because I know that, uh, you know, how we enter a space mm. and how we leave a space matters. Mm. So I, I love this sweeping stairs so you don't step on the bugs. Yeah. Uh, my partner is now a certified yoga instructor. Uh, she's the one who told me about you. Mm. She loves what you do and represent. Uh, she has had her own struggles. Um with meditation, mm. with uh, things that I often talk about, which yeah. are the appropriation, which I don't like. One of my best friends is a white woman. She's one of the best yoga teachers I know. Like she's had experiences where she was wearing like a Ganesh shirt that she got at an Urban Outfitters and a woman came up to her, a South Asian woman came up to her and was like, why are you wearing that? That's messed up, you know? Mm. And, uh, and it's a fine line. It's a mm. fine line um, mm. between Lululemon and the practice and the yeah. heart of it and working out. And mm. uh, my partner is half white, half Mexican, and she's had her own struggles with this. Like, mm. what is appropriation? Can I teach this in Spanish? Mm. 
where do you stand on any of that? Yeah, I love I love this question. So first of all, I think it's helpful to define cultural appropriation and to understand that it always happens in a system of oppression, right? System of power. So there's a power imbalance, meaning there's a dominant culture that may be taking from another culture and then the source culture. And so to just like give a really complicated, I mean, a, make a complicated thing simple, if you take, like, the crown jewels in England, they came from India, right? They were sourced from India. They're Indian um, natural resources and wealth. Where are they right now? In Buckingham Palace. And there's a big movement to get Britain to give those crown jewels back. Clearly appropriation, right? And, and in basic terms, it's theft. It's stealing. It gets a little more complicated when you're talking about, like, cultural knowledge or wisdom, which comes from a place or a people. Again, here we're talking about yoga. So it's India. It's a whole system of liberation that Indian folks created. And then when it's utilized by folks who are not Indian, so not from the dominant, not from the, the source culture, maybe from the dominant culture, maybe not, it can get a little, like you said, it can get a little sticky. It can get a little questionable. And so I like to say, Really, you've got to look at two things. And one is, is there a power imbalance? And two, is there harm? And that harm is harm to the people that the practice comes from, like cultural harm, but also material harm. Like, are we actually essentially stealing or like taking profits or taking something from those folks? And so in the case of like, you know, eating Indian food, right, it's not, it's, there's a power difference maybe, but there's not harm. It's actually supporting a Indian restaurant if it's owned by Indian folks, if we go and eat there. Then when you get to yoga, it gets a little more complicated because, for example, if someone is wearing, you know, a Guinness shirt, uh, I think where I could see where, I don't know the exact situation, right, but if someone who's South Asian comes up and is like, hey, why are you wearing that shirt? It might be because that, for me or for my family, is like a god. That's like a divine being. And would you be wearing Jesus on your shirt just casually, right? Like, it, you know, it's kind of a way of saying, <laughs> let's let's have a little more respect. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I like that question. Would you wear Jesus on your shirt casually? And yeah. some people would. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Which is, which is fair. <laughs> um, we all get to make choices in this life. I was in, a, I went to a wedding in Maine. Mm. And I went to I'd do a yoga class before the wedding, the day of the wedding. Um, and it was packed. Mm-hmm. It was like 35 people in a room. And that mm-hmm. was like, the room was like, that's, I mean, wall to wall, like yeah. mats. And the teacher was black. Mm. And not something I expected in Portland, Maine. And not a single black person in the class. Yeah, It was like, black teacher, uh, you know, like Latino kid in the back, uh, in the way back, me, and then a bunch of white people. Yeah. She actually, after, was like, hey, do I know you? And I was like, no, nah, I don't think so. And she was like, you sure? And I was like, yeah, I don't think so. And then I did say, yo, where can I get a bagel? And she said, oh, across the street, there's this place, Roses. And so I go across the street. And uh, she says, she comes into Roses and she says, I do know you. You wrote that book, Brown Enough. Um, and I said, I said, yeah. And she said, you know, you saw my class. She was like, you know how hard it is to be the one black person? Yeah. Sometimes it feels like in this town mm. and especially in this space. What would you say to her? Mm. Ooh. 
well, a lot of respect for doing what she's doing because it's not easy. And I can speak for myself, right? Like what helps me is having a saga, having a community, having other folks that I can talk to and that can support me. Um, they don't necessarily have to be like me. They don't have to be South Asian, right? Could be white allies, white accomplices. A lot of, you know, I have um, many colleagues who are white allies who I can, if a microaggression happens, I can say, hey, can you step in? Can you speak up on this? But it's up to every individual person person of color, I think, particularly, and I'm, I'm curious what you think on this, how much they address those things when they happen, right? But you can tell from what, how she, or at least for me, when I hear you share that story, is like she's experiencing stuff all the time. And that's a lot to hold. And so I wouldn't say to someone, you have to stay in that situation. Uh, but if you are going to take care of yourself, right? Nourish yourself, get the supports that you need. And it's absolutely, you know, your right to ask for support from, from other folks. And then um, I, so I tend to not go in as the only one. I find it really hard to be the only person of color. And so when I go in, I'll go with colleagues, I'll go with allies, I'll go with other folks. So we can just kind of like bring our crew into the space and, and change the energy, right? And also, so there's support if it's needed. And if it is your calling to do that, then amazing, because we need, you know, we need everyone to, to I think, that representation is part of what's the change that's happening right now. The revolution that's happening is more folks that look like you, that look like me, that look like that teacher in Maine, um, taking up space and saying this, we are what wellness looks like. We are what a yoga teacher looks like. Thank you, thank you, Susanna, for making space, for creating an environment where people like us are welcome to sit, to breathe and practice no matter who we are. If you are interested in learning more about Susanna's work, visit her website, susannabarkataki.com. There you'll find more about her practice and any event she has coming up. Until next time, y'all. Peace. Brown Enough is a production of Stitcher Studios. It's created and hosted by me, Christopher Rivas, and I'm also an executive producer. Our team includes producer Manolo Morales, technical director Casey Holford, production assistant Gabriella Gladney, and executive producer Camille Stanley. Original music by Casey Holford. Special thanks to Abby Aguilar. Workhouse Media is a contributing producer to this podcast. Carlos E. Hernandez of Ikigai Management is also an executive producer of Brown Enough. Don't forget to subscribe or follow Brown Enough so you never miss an episode. Thanks. Peace and love. Peace and love.